0: Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work.
1: Get out! Come on!
0: We don't know where the moon came from.
1: Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible.
0: We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah, and this is Bio Eats World, our show where we talk about all the ways that biology is technology. And today we're talking to Dr. Jennifer Doudna, who won the 2020 Nobel Prize for the co-discovery with Emmanuel Charpentier of CRISPR-Cas9 about the art and science of biology. As Dr. Doudna describes, tech is enabling bio to move from an artisanal process to an industrial one. And we're beginning to see a real shift from qualitative descriptive science to quantitative predictive high throughput science with increasing automation. But there is also something ineffable about biology that relies on creativity and discovery. Huge breakthroughs such as Doudna's, which began with the identification of CRISPR in bacteria and was then built into a highly adaptable genome editing platform, are now fueling the evolution of the field. In this conversation, A16Z general partner Vijay Pandey and Doudna talk about what happens as CRISPR and other tools to engineer and interrogate biology mature. What does the future of biology look like? Can discovery itself be engineered and industrialized? And how do we recognize the moment of that shift? Doudna talks about the arc of her career and work through this lens, from basic research to applied, what can be built tomorrow on today's discoveries and what, at the end of the day, may never be engineerable.
0: There is so much excitement for our ability to engineer biology and to take what we've learned and create new therapies, new things in synthetic biology, all of the product and company side is really blossoming. At the same time, if we didn't have that basic research, we probably wouldn't be where we are now. Given the arc of what you've seen, where you stand on that, how should we be thinking about that balance?
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Bio Eats World, it's a great theme because we're at a point right now in biology where there's a, an interesting convergence of fundamental knowledge that has largely come from curiosity driven science together with the enabling technologies that are now allowing scientists and biologists in particular to, to do things that even a, a couple of years ago, we would have found unimaginable. I think you bring up a great point And that is, you know, how do we get the right balance between fundamental science and sort of more engineering or, you know, focused, uh, applied science? You know, I've always done, uh, I guess what you would call curiosity-driven science for the most part. And increasingly, I find myself faced with problems or challenges that we're working on that are really kind of right at the edge of that, you know, and you, you sort of ask yourself, do we know enough that this is now an engineering problem, or is there still really important, very fundamental work that needs to happen that could be very enabling, but, you know, maybe not for a few years?
0: Yeah, you know, it's a tricky question, and I think part of it is also just the time scales. So when I think about basic research I was thinking of the discovery and invention of CRISPR almost to be akin to that of the transistor where it's really now only 50 years later when you can pack you know 10 billion 50 billion transistors on a chip that you can do these things that are mind blowing and so you can't expect to get immediate returns even 10 year returns out of basic work on the other hand it is these major discoveries like CRISPR like the transistor that really can make these huge shifts and so There naturally has to be a balance. So much of the biology's discovery, there's just so much to learn, so much to discover compared to, let's say, in physics, where you can do so much more theoretically and drive it, or even compared to engineering, where you can sort of maybe in principle grind things out more. I am just really curious for what ways we can shift even just the aspect of discovery, the process of discovery from an art To an industrialized process? Can we industrialize discovery? Where are we now with that? And where do you think we can go?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, it reminded me of at one point I had a visitor from Google who came up to the lab at Berkeley. He wanted to have a tour of a working experimental biology lab. And he was just kind of shocked at the way we do science. And his word for it was artisanal. He said, This looks artisanal to me. And he said, I think you guys could do a lot to automate. Your work and this and that. But in the end, it hasn't been that easy really to automate or industrialize the work that we're doing. Now, certainly in some ways that's happened just by the power of computing being so much greater. And as you said, you know, having more programmers and people that think computationally involved in biology has been a huge plus. And that's really had a very positive impact. But you know, there's just I don't know, there's something about biology that there's stochastic things that you just can't yet really predict. Now, every now and then, something happens that makes me think, huh, maybe we're on the cusp of a real change. And like, for example, the work that was recently announced about being able to predict protein folds accurately, right, computationally. I mean, that really seems like a really interesting advance that could revolutionize certainly that field, right? And so you could imagine that that kind of thing could extend in other directions too. I mean, maybe eventually, for example, it becomes much easier to assign function to genes because we'll have enough predictive information that if you feed that all into the right algorithm, you get a very limited number of possibilities that come out that makes your experimental work a lot easier or more robust.
0: One of the things here is that just the aspects of automation is pretty hardcore. You get like a big robot, like a T-Can or something like that. It's pretty expensive. And that's only for a specific kind of high throughput, rolling through lots of things, whereas lots of biology is N equals five or something like that, you know, (laughs) uh, five different things, maybe a lot of replicates, but, you know, not 5,000 or 5 million. And I'm curious whether just like the innovation that we've seen in kits, let's say over the last 20, 25 years, whether a kit, could be both the reagents and the software to drive like a little desktop robot, like an Opentrons or something like that, where that desktop robot maybe is the equivalent of the PC here, that it can be fast and nimble and do things. And that because it comes in the kit with the reagents and with the software to drive it, that people will build upon kits, kits upon kits and so on. And, you know, you finally get to something that's useful, because I think maybe the point you're making is that You know, if you had a big robot, that wouldn't be faster if you have to do the small end, right? It would probably be more work than pipetting by hand. Do you think that's getting closer in the right direction?
1: I'm trying to think about where the real bottlenecks are just in my own research world. There's really two, and one can't be solved with a robot, at least until we get robots that are thinking on their own, probably, because that's really at the level of the, like we were saying, kind of the gut feeling. There's lots and lots of ideas out there, but only some of them are good, and so how do you figure out what you're going to spend time going after? So there's still that problem. But once you're onto a good idea, then just getting through the experiments, I think that's where having nimble, small, and not super expensive robots in the lab could be really Enabling, I have to say that, you know, we, we've worked with a number of, and yeah, as you said, it's typically a big box of a thing that is, you know, designed to do one type of task. At least in my experience, they're often very fussy. So you have to spend quite a bit of time just getting the whole thing working with whatever you're trying to do and maybe even training a person or hiring a person that's going to, you know, be responsible for running that robot. And then you know you might run it for some months or something, and then you decide, oh, now I want to change my experiment and do some different thing, but oh now that robot's no good for that, right? I think if there were a way to have small robots that were easily adaptable to different tasks and could do them very accurately, but could be, you know, and I guess it could be the case that you had individual small, not too expensive robots that were good at a certain type of task, and then you'd had a different robot for a different type of test, that could work. I think that could be really enabling.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think this is where the industrialization, if you're building a shoe factory, you're going to make shoes and you'll make maybe slightly different shoes, but you're not going to make like teddy bears or something like that, you know? And whereas you have to be super nimble and you may be doing a radically different experiment the next week or next day or something like that. And I think, yeah, it is that generalizability that we need. But, you know, part of the, maybe the most exciting point is the shift. I see so many people making the shift from having done basic a sort of curiosity-driven research towards applied.
1: That really, in many ways, I think has underscored a lot of the things that I've done over the years in my own lab, beginning with all the way back to, you know, when I started my faculty career, looking at the structures of ribozymes. You know, and that for us really kind of took us into the field eventually of RNA interference and RNA molecules in viruses that are part of the machinery for controlling translation in infected cells. And then from there to CRISPR. And these were always uh, projects that were in my lab framed uh, from the perspective of how does this work? You know, how does this work from a molecular perspective, whether it's Um, the actual structures of the underlying molecules, or their enzymatic or biochemical behaviors. And that's how we approached CRISPR as well. It was really, you know, for us in the beginning was the question of this looks like an adaptive immune system in bacteria that is RNA directed in some way. And how does that work? So, you know, it was a project that very much started with that really fundamental question.
0: There's this seemingly big gap between studying an adaptive immune system of bacteria to the ability to engineer genomes and develop new classes of therapeutics for things that were previously undruggable. How did you start to see the sort of connecting the dots?
1: Quite frankly, when we began that work now almost a dozen years ago, I certainly didn't expect it to go the way it did. You know, in fact, I was a little bit reticent about working on it in the beginning because I was you know, receiving funding from the NIH and from Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And I thought, you know, how can I really defend this as something that has anything to do with human health? And now, as we all know, it has everything to do with human health. And it started with those very fundamental questions of how does this immune system work? And then a very specific question about one particular protein, Cas9, that was clearly implicated as a central player in the CRISPR immune systems in some bacteria. And then it was pretty obvious from those biochemical data that this enzyme, which works as an RNA-guided cleaver of DNA and can be directed to cleave a desired DNA sequence, that concept converged so well with all of the other work that was going on in genome editing. Because people were looking for ways to cut DNA in cells in a way making a double-stranded break that would induce the cell to repair the DNA and thereby introduce a change to the sequence. And so here we had this cleaver, and it was programmable. You could tell it where to go and make a cut, and that just converged beautifully with all of the work on genome engineering using earlier technologies. It's just that this is a much easier way to do it.
0: One of the fun things about things that came out of natural selection is that it seems like they were evolved to be evolvable. You know, I think about like chaperonins and things helping proteins sort of do things. One of the hallmarks of bringing in sort of engineering mentality or or approaches are that you can have iterative improvement and things can get a little better year over year. And often that improvement is compounding, almost like compounding interest, where you could sense that there was a shift from this is the time to be curious to this is the time to engineer.
1: Well, one of the things that's so exciting about CRISPR from an engineering perspective is that it's turned out to be a, a system that's highly amenable to modification. I think they make a really good point that nature kind of sets things up that way anyway. And we see that in natural CRISPR biology because there's a large collection of these enzymes that have evolved in different bacteria and they can look really quite different from each other and have a range of activities. And so clearly nature is doing this too. It's tweaking and, you know, fine tuning these proteins for their native environment. In my mind, I have this vision of this whole, you know, toolbox that's all built around this RNA, you know, fundamentally this RNA guided mechanism adds all kinds of interesting different chemical activities that allow these types of manipulation in genomes. In 2013, there were just sort of began to be a cascade of publications that came out that year from different groups showing that you could use Cas9 in human cells, you could use it to engineer zebrafish. There were lots of really interesting proof of principle discoveries that were put forward using the CRISPR-Cas9 system that made it clear that this was going to be a transformative tool for doing all kinds of science, not only fundamental research and the kinds of things that were enabled by um, being able to probe the function of genes, make knockouts in targeted ways in cells, but frankly also to use it in a very applied way, namely to make, for example, corrective mutations in genes that would fix the sickle cell mutation, you know, things like that. My mindset was already kind of thinking about, you know, how do we use these? They're clearly interesting enzymes. They clearly have utility in the research arena. That just kind of, you know, expanded infinitely from our original thinking. It was, you know, can we use these to do diagnostics or use them to uh, detect different kinds of viral RNAs, essentially taking advantage of what they do in nature, but doing it in an in vitro setting as a research tool. And I frankly think there's still a lot of runway there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious for how you have a sense for what is sort of going to be the next things that are engineerable in biology. Are there things that you're excited about or are there sort of tips that you would give for people for how they could even identify that?
1: Boy, that's tough. You know, it's one of those things where you're either looking under the lamppost for things that look like things you already know about. Or you're kind of doing fundamental work, you know, on whatever topic, but you have sort of an eye out towards, you know, if I happen to come across something that looks like it's going to be useful or engineerable, I'm going to pull that aside. So Jillian Banfield at Berkeley has for a long time been working on bacterial metagenomes, and that basically just means being able to take the DNA sequences from microbes, stitch them back together so we know what their entire genome looks like. And then, you know, learning fundamental biology by doing various kinds of analysis. And she was actually one of the very first people to come across CRISPR sequences by doing that kind of thing. But as you can imagine, she's coming across, you know, all sorts of really interesting observations in her work. And one of the challenges that we have is that, you know, she's often coming to me and saying, hey, I have this really cool observation, you know, what do you think? And they all look very interesting. And so we struggle to figure out, you know, where do we want to focus our efforts And is it worth, you know, working on the next CRISPR system versus should we be casting our net in a different direction? And to some extent, we try to do both. But I struggle with this. You know, it's not really very easy, I think, to figure out where the next big insider or technology will be coming from.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm curious to test a hypothesis on you and see what you think. You should feel free to completely shoot this down. It would only break my heart, that's all. Uh, (laughs) So one of the things that's really interesting is if you think about many hallmarks about biology, like the modularity, you know, from amino acids to proteins to complexes, large things to cells, organelles, tissue and organs and so on, there is that sort of modularity at many scales. And that you can mess with the amino acid or mess with the protein, or you can do things at different scales. And that way, not everything is having to redesign things atom by atom. You can redesign parts or so on. So modularity is one part. And then you can start taking these building blocks and start putting them together in interesting ways. And obviously, you've seen that in so many different ways. So is biology and aspects of natural selection really kind of been sort of driving the engineering ability here? Or can you think of times where they're in opposition? Because it doesn't have to be the case.
1: Right. No, it doesn't have to be the case. As you were asking the question, I was thinking back to actually our shared history with ribozymes. Because you know back in the 1980s, when people were discovering these catalytic RNAs, there was a tremendous excitement about being able to Engineer something not found in nature. And I think now, you know, if you look back, I mean, we're now a few decades ahead, and it hasn't been that easy to really do a lot of engineering on ribozymes that made them do things differently from what you find in nature. And then if you look naturally, we also find that there aren't huge numbers of diverse types of ribozymes
0: in comparison to enzymes which have a great diversity
1: exactly exactly so i think that's one example where i think your hypothesis you know holds up and then you know with crispr it's kind of the opposite in a way in the sense that we see a large number of very diverse forms of crispr cas proteins in nature They have the same mechanism, but they work a bit differently. And so I think that's consistent, at least, with the idea that we find in the lab that nature has also found this to be a very pliable platform for manipulating DNA, or in some cases, RNA in cells.
0: Yeah. I'm always looking for that moment where we feel like we've made that transition. That moment is really important for bringing in collaborators or thinking about pouring in research funding for doing venture funding. I mean, how do you know we found that moment? It almost sounds like. You have to try a few things. I mean, one of the most important catalytic machinery on Earth, the ribosome, is a ribozyme. So you might have high hopes for it, but it doesn't have to be. As long as you can sort of read, write, edit, modify, you can start making variants and start trying to do these things. And some things will be engineerable and some things won't. And I guess you'll see whether it catches. We see this in science and in startups where just people start piling in and realizing that there's really something here.
1: Yes. Well, I'll tell a little vignette. Back when we were starting to work on CRISPR proteins in the mid to late 2000s, as I mentioned, you know, we started to get the idea that these could be very useful enzymes for research purposes. And so the first call I ever had with a venture capitalist was a call where I described to him the data we had for these CRISPR-Cas proteins that can bind and cut, in this case, RNA in a very precise fashion And how you might be able to use that activity as a way of detecting particular RNA sequences. And, you know, we spent an hour on the phone talking about what's the killer app for this? And nothing really gelled. There were, you know, this idea, that idea, but didn't really gel. And how would you even modify a protein like that to make it more useful? Eh, Not really clear. So I kind of came away from that call thinking, okay, well, this is probably not, you know, yet at a point where it's going to have that kind of, opportunity to just expand in a lot of directions. And that was very different than with CAS9, right? Because that just kind of immediately, you know, you didn't need to ask anyone. It was like, yeah, this is clearly going to be, you know, something that's going to be really useful. And then the question was just how broadly can you engineer it to do different things? And like you said, then as people start jumping into a field and they start to get traction in their own projects, and you see this kind of exponential growth, and that's really Exciting when you see that happening in science. I mean, we've seen it also in the area of imaging technologies in the last few years, same thing, as well as in cancer you know, therapies, where again, there's just so many opportunities, lots of people jumping into it. And I, I'm curious how you think about this too, with your VC hat on. But, you know, sometimes when that happens, people also can get tunnel vision, right? Everybody starts working in one direction. And yet there might be something very interesting over there that, you know, the crowd isn't focused on, but, but is actually really, really important. So how do you think about that when you see this kind of, Exponential frenzy in a field and yet you have a sense that maybe we're missing something
0: yeah, it's a really hard question and you know like anything you handle it with a portfolio, right whether it's a portfolio of like grad students and postdocs in your lab doing different things or a portfolio of dollars or portfolio of companies, a portfolio of ideas. I think some of the most exciting things are the contrarian ones. But, you know, with that said, it all is whether the data bears out, whether there's something really there. And then one of the things that my strongest mentors always sort of enforced upon me is that as PIs or as investors, we have to have some sense of good taste, right? Have some sense of some guess, some gut feeling for where or the interest or just even where our curiosity is, right?
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's right. There's something kind of unquantifiable about the gut feeling about a project that is very real.
0: You know, you've been a founder or co-founder of many startups now. And I would love to pick your brain for any sort of lessons that you've learned or advice that you'd give people that are coming up behind you that want to follow in those footsteps, especially in, you know, the sort of landscape where we are now and talking about all the things that we can do that we couldn't do even just a few years ago. You know, how does that affect the way you think about company building?
1: So I'm struggling with this right now, actually, VJ, because there's a number of opportunities that build on some of the work that's coming out of CRISPR biology and technology that could be ready for a company, but I'm not sure. Like one of the challenges with CRISPR is the whole question of delivery. How do you deliver CRISPR molecules into cells, whether it's in plants or whether it's in people, it's a problem, right? And It's a problem that hasn't really been addressed in a comprehensive way. So is that an engineering problem? Yes. But is it also going to require some fundamental discovery? Yes. I think probably the answer is yes. So you kind of need both. And so is that better done in a company or is it better done in academic labs? And again, the answer is probably both. And so then, you know, it's trying to figure out how you parse out a challenge like that and build, let's say, a company team around it with the right people. And ideally, at least in my opinion, you know, for something like that, you would do it in a way that and with the right investors who are, you know, acknowledging that, yeah, this is not a short-term problem. It's going to be solved only over a period of time. And hopefully you have some shorter-term goals built in there so that from a company perspective, you can gain traction. But you have to have a team that's going to be willing to, you know, really put in the R&D effort to make some breakthroughs.
0: So thinking about this world, maybe, I don't know, 10, 20 years from now, and, you know, you think about engineered CRISPR engineering, the rest of biology in so many different ways, and we could talk about healthcare, we could talk about energy and climate change. We could talk about feeding 10 billion people on the planet in a sustainable, healthy way. When I think about a lot of the challenges that we are facing in the world, they are inherently biological at some level or could be addressed with all the different sort of engineering biology technologies we're doing. I'm curious to sort of how you think about the principles for how to handle what we can do. Because the flip side is also potentially scary, right? I mean, the things that what people could do with this great power and want to do the opposite of what we describe. And I'm curious for what you think about the guiding principles for how we should handle this new power.
1: Ooh, wow, you threw me a tough one at the end here, BJ. <laughs> well, I do think that part of the solution to that comes from active engagement. So I'm a big proponent, as you know, of transparency and of engagement of scientists and especially academic scientists with people outside of that academic ivory tower. So I think that's very important. And it's certainly been helpful to me, honestly, over the last few years with CRISPR and thinking about all of the you know, challenges there. And like you said, there's many scientific opportunities with it. Which ones are the most, you know, going to be the most important to focus on? That's one question. But then also just making sure that the technology is advancing in ways that are productive and not destructive, right? So, you know, for myself, I think that it's really about engaging as broadly as possible, but also looking for ways to build synergies. And so, like, let's take the climate change example. I mean, it's probably the big kind of existential threat that we're facing right now across humanity. And so, you know, is it appropriate to be addressing that with biological solutions? Absolutely. And so then the question is how to do that. And again, you know, going back to the CRISPR example, the way that I'm thinking about that is by working with colleagues that are focused on the soil microbiome, ways that you can manipulate soil microbes to enhance carbon capture, but also to enhance the production of food and deal with issues of a changing climate from the perspective of the soil and agriculture. So that's one area. Now, is that something I work on? It's not, right? But it's something where I would love to enable others to do that, to convene groups and make people aware of what the opportunities are with this technology that could apply to problems that they're working
0: on. Yeah. You know, when I think about this question... I think the North Star for me is trying to do things that we think can be in best in alignment with existing biology. So you think about like fossil fuels, maybe like the exact opposite of that, where you pump all this stuff out of the ground and then you have all this residual waste, which maybe we turned to plastic, which becomes different types of waste. And one of the key principles in biology has been sort of a circular nature to things where the main thing is energy coming in from the sun, but the rest moves along because there's always going to be on un- known unknowns, but if we can stick in that sort of alignment, we have that chance. And what gets me really excited about CRISPR or other bioengineering technologies is that it feels like it's the best hope for being in alignment with nature because we're doing it in a hopefully more natural way.
1: Oh, that's very interesting. And it gets back to this question of, you know, are engineered organisms natural or not? I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, if you're using engineering to get to organisms that, yeah, they would exist if they had enough time to evolve, it's just that you don't want to maybe wait a million years, right? That's <laughs> exactly
0: right. Just to sort of shoo it along a little bit, like curling and keep it going in the right way, but nothing extreme. Right. So just in the last minute or so, CRISPR is an example of a technology where I think is well known sort of very broadly in the public. And I think people hear lots of different things about it. I'm curious if there's anything that you wish the public understood better about the science that you've done.
1: Well, I guess it comes back to where we started in a way. I think it's important to understand that technologies like CRISPR, more often than not, they come out of kind of left field in the sense that they come from fundamental curiosity-driven science. And so it really is important to support that kind of work in concert with people that are taking those discoveries and applying them. Something like this doesn't just, you know, it's not sort of created, right? It has to be uncovered by sort of a more stochastic process of fundamental science.
0: That's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World.
2: Thank you for inviting me, Vijay. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z bio newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.